2: For
0: just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor-Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
1: Hello and welcome to
0: Savor. I'm Annie Reese And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum and we have a bonus episode for you today. Yes. It is an interview um, which we talked about and you heard a little bit of in our Scotch episode we got to go over to American Spirit Works, a local Atlanta distillery, and talk to some of the team over there.
1: Yeah, we talked to the head distiller, Justin Manglitz, and mysterious person who works there, I think, in marketing, Chad Ralston. <laughs> he was never <laughs> quite up front, but I think it's marketing.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. Th- I think that's very fitting for someone in marketing.
1: Oh! Oh! Hate mail. Oh, no, please don't do that. Oh, no, that would be very sad. No, I, I— uh, enjoyed some scotch on on the New Year's Day. Yeah, uh, I guess that's a new tradition I've adopted thanks to this show. So, uh, oh, yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, I still haven't. No one's entered my apartment yet. What, <laughs> Lauren's what is, like, what are you talking? about? Supposedly, the first person that crosses your threshold of your door oh. in the new year influences the rest of your year.
0: Oh, okay. I think it was my cat. Does that count?
1: What kind of what color fur? Which cat was it? Gray cat. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Apparently, a redhead is the worst that could happen oh, to you.
0: Oh, right. But my oh, best man. friend
1: has red hair, so. Oh, <laughs> I know. Decisions, decisions. Anyway, <laughs> it was a it was once again one of those lovely interviews. Um, oh yeah,
0: sprawling and so fun and knowledgeable. They were. I mean,
1: yeah we we were. We were there and happy to be there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) No one was sprawling during it. Um, The conversation was sprawling, and they were knowledgeable.
1: Yes. Yes. And we got to sample (laughs) some of their fine product, Tire Fire, which again is a wonderful name. Oh, yeah. For a scotch-style whiskey.
0: So, yeah, uh, we hope that you enjoy it as much as we did, and uh, we'll get right to it. I like to start interviews with the question, hi, who are you? (laughs)
5: <laughs> I'm Justin Manglitz, I'm the head distiller here at ASW Distillery This is Chad Ralston And I'm Ralston. Chad Ralston Oh yes, I'm sorry
6: yeah. uh, I, can, I can actually speak for myself <laughs> uh, I'm Chad Ralston and I'm the token millennial here Technically I'm also a millennial. I was born in nineteen eighty one. You doesn't act like it
5: though. I don't act like it apparently. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, we're that in-between generation. It's yeah. okay. Yeah. So what you guys were bottling today is a peated whiskey. Um, can we start with some basics like what is we know what whiskey is, but what's like like well, what is peat and what is malt?
5: Absolutely. So really starting with malt is the easiest place to to begin from. So malt can be really any type of grain, but in this case, barley, that has been germinated by soaking it in warm water and letting it sit so that it sprouts, just like you would start a seed at home in your garden. Um, And in that process, in the, the sprouting process, the complex starches in the grain simplify and the bonds break and they become simple starches. And the process creates a diastatic enzymes in the grain, which are capable of converting those starches into sugar if heated up to the right temperature for the right amount of time. So when you sprout that barley to malt it or sprout anything to malt it, in order to make it shelf stable so that it can be stored for a period of time and used by brewery or distillery or whatever, you have to dry it out. Historically, that was obviously not done with uh, natural gas. (laughs) So in different places, they use different things. Wood would have been very common... Lasers? (laughs) Um, lasers. Spe- <laughs> Wait, lasers? No. Uh, in Taiwan. <laughs> right. That's what. That's what makes Kavalon different. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, in Ireland, where it was forested, originally forested, they used wood traditionally. Scotland, even before the English cut down all the trees that were there, didn't have a lot of trees. They mainly used peat, which is essentially petrified mud from a bog, and when you burn that to create heat. Obviously, it's also creating smoke and that in the process of using the heat to dry the barley, that smoke infiltrates the husk material of the barley and gives it the peaty, smoky flavor. Uh, Historically, because most malt was kilned, dried with wood, with something that smoked, a lot of beers, Four or five hundred thousand years ago would have been smoky. Uh, whiskey didn't quite exist yet a thousand years ago, it was on the edge. So, smoke was a very common and I guess essential element of beverage alcohol for a lot of the history of beverage alcohol, especially grain based beverage alcohol. Um, so, that's basically where, where the peak comes in, and, and this, the, the different. Levels of smokiness in the malt are governed by the amount of peat, the type of peat that are used to smoke the grain. So what I'm using for the tire fire is a heavy peated malt, which is 45 ppm creosols. Creosols are basically the smoke molecule, smoke element, which is on the very high side of peat. So that would mimic, say, an Isla whiskey, like Laphroaig or Lagavulin or Ardbeg, which is my favorite of whiskey. The Highland, and and those whiskies are traditionally made largely or, or completely from peated malt. Whereas in the Highland region, and to some degree in Speyside uh, region of Scotland, they're using either lower phenol, lower PPM uh, malts, or just a mixture of, Peated barley and unpeated barley to have a somewhat more subtle smoke quality, which I also
6: enjoy largely.
5: I and think Chad does as well.
6: I do uh, so much so that my wife and I spent our honeymoon in Isla drinking Cask Strength Lagavulin, Cask Strength Lefroy, Cask Strength Ardbeg at 9:30 a.m., which really sets the tone for the day. Uh, but today, this very day that we were bottling Tire Fire is our three-year anniversary, so it's kind of fitting. We'll be definitely opening and drinking a majority of that bottle tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll find out if it gives you a headache. That's right. Very quickly
5: now. When we opened ASW Distillery, as, as a whiskey maker, I do like to experiment and make different things. And both Chad, or Chad and Jim and Charlie, are all big fans of Isla whiskeys, um, with, of Petey malt. I like the smoke creosols. I like the peat creosols. I'm not a huge fan of the band aid and rubber creosols portions. Um, so, when I started thinking about doing the Tire Fire project, we were in a meeting and I said, if we were talking about some new products, and I said, if I could make us a whiskey that tasted like straight up poison, should I do it? And the agreement was definitely. <laughs> Should definitely do that. Um, and, then <laughs> and I just kind of ran with it. And um, this this malt, like I was saying, it's more or less specially brought in for me. Not many people are using the heavy peated malt. Um, I do, however, cut it in a way when I distill it to pull out some of the, most of the more rubbery compounds because I don't personally like them and some people love them. I don't care for them. So I I'm able to remove those towards the beginning of the the run to get a very smoky, very peaty whiskey that doesn't have some of the phenols that turn people off. So hopefully make it, while super smoky, a little bit more approachable to a wider array of people at the same time. And the tire fire was just, I I have to have something to write on the barrels when I make these whiskeys so I know what they are. And I had started calling it tire fire and so I started writing on the barrels and eventually, Chad was just like, it, let's call it Tirefire. <laughs> <laughs> Bleep it, call it Tirefire. <laughs> uh, and really, and and Chad makes all the labels that we do in-house for all these things, and that really has enabled uh, me to do the experimentation, because if we were paying $20,000 to a, you know, designer and a brander to come up with these things, I, we couldn't do that. So because he's willing, was willing to do this more, he's, he's running out of time now, but... That's really enabled us to, to have cool, interesting things come out to kind of really um, prove our mettle and... And hit a lot of the different whiskey styles. Yeah, so whiskey, whiskey is, is kind of strange. It's v- still very segmented. Like, there are, we still get people coming in that say, oh, I only like bourbon. And there are plenty of people that say, I only drink Isla heavy peated whiskeys. <laughs> But nobody goes to a restaurant and they're like, ah, I only eat hamburgers. <laughs> Bring me ribs. If you don't have ribs, I'm leaving. I only eat ribs. This was the same way that it was with beer 20 years ago. I only drink Miller Lite, you know, and we're still in that realm with a lot of spirits consumers in the whiskey world. And we are, we want to be able to offer a wide array and also expand people's horizons, just like the breweries, the craft breweries were doing 15 years ago, 10 years ago. Well, we we want to try to, lead people into
6: expanding their horizons when it comes to spirits. And that's what our tasting room is for. You yeah. Know? Um, we're here right in the heart of Atlanta and one of the biggest convention markets in the country. We get lots of tourists all throughout the, the year and we have obviously a, a booming metro area of residents as well. And so we just see hundreds of people coming through here every week and you'll have somebody who comes in saying, I, I really only drink bourbon and they try know maybe Americonic which is a very nice kind of bridge into the single malt category because it's very bourbon-esque in that it was aged in a new charred oak barrel so it has some nice vanillin characteristics and it's helping broaden people's flavor profiles and and taste or
5: or duality especially because it it's 50% smoked malt but it's cherry it's wood smoked malt so which which manifests very differently than peat and it's more of a more subtle kind of fruity cherry flavor it's also a little bit uh more barrel heavy so that that has been i've had a lot of people say i, I mostly drink bourbon but man that duality cool. so i mean and then their next step can be whatever it is whether it's a rye or tire fire maybe not quite there yet
0: but <laughs> we're working on it. small steps yeah. yeah yeah where where do you guys get your malt and where did they get the peat to smoke it
5: this was made by Baird's, which is a Scottish uh, malting company. They do not tell you where they get the peat. So, well, fair
0: enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Scotland, so, so. I would assume. Yeah, Scotland, yes,
5: absolutely. It's a Scottish company, Scottish grown grain, Scottish harvested peat. Is um, it just
6: because they're parsimonious with words why they won't tell you? Or they... Um, they probably don't want to waste the ink writing a email. There's that's exactly right. So there's a little bit of a, a little bit of lore around the whiskey with an e and whiskey without an e spelling of whiskey, and the best explanation I've heard is that the Scottish label printers dropped the e hundreds of years ago because it wasted ink, and so they were being thrifty.
0: <laughs> that's wonderful.
6: Yeah,
5: yeah. So this I, Druid Hill, the triple pot still which mimics an Irish style pure pot still whiskey that I, the malt I use for that, I get from a very, very small Irish family farm and malt company called Lochran's in County Lyle and know the guy James. And so there, there are things we use more that we have a little bit more information on, but with the heavy peated, they also make a super peated malt, but this gets shipping issues because they don't like to, sh- they won't ship it in a container with other unpeated malts because it makes everything reek of peat. Greek. So, I'm still I'm still pushing to do a, a higher tire fire, but we'll see.
0: <laughs> um yeah, yeah, no, make the tire fire bigger. I love that. Uh, <laughs> and what were you guys uh actually distilling today?
5: Uh we're doing duality today. Yep. Yeah, so I, I generally make things in about 4-week blocks. Um the duality is 50 it's, it's a double malt whiskey, which is just some some crap I made up. It's mm-hmm. rye malt and 50% cherry smoked malt. In Scotland, they only recognize, because they're kind of grumpy, they only recognize barley, malt made from barley as being malt, but you can actually malt almost any grain. So in America, we we consider rye malt to be malt and wheat malt to be malt. Um, So in Scotland, a double malt is generally a single malt from two different distilleries married together. Made in some proportion,
6: 100% malted barley, right?
5: Made from 100% malted barley, um, so my, I, I basically just had the idea to combine, do exactly 50% rye malt and 50% barley malt based on the American definitions of malt, and call that a double malt, um, which, as far as I know, as far as we can tell, is not, has not been done anywhere. Ferment and mash that all grain in, and distill it grain in. So that's what we're doing today is the duality, and it like I said, it's. It's cherry smoke,
6: malt and, and rye malt. And that was actually George's first ever double gold whiskey. Yeah. Double gold yeah. medal yeah. winning This whiskey. year it yeah. won a
5: double gold at San Francisco, which is the main spirits competition, the one that, that truly matters. So, yeah, that was good.
0: Yeah, congratulations. You were talking uh, back by the stills about the Scottish uh, method of just using the juice. Right. I'm using very technical terms. The wash. Um, uh, the mm-hmm. wash, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, versus the bourbon method of having the mash in there right. versus yes. your method. Could you talk about how you uh, arrived at that process?
5: When Charlie and Jim, when I first started working with them about three years before we opened the distillery, just to plan things out, they were really into rye and they wanted to make a rye whiskey, um, which is a difficult cooking and, and mashing process because it's got a lot of uh, gluten in it so it's very gummy and thick so I said hey how about we do a rye malt whiskey which I wasn't sure if it would have those same problems Um, I I had I mostly make single malt from barley's prior so I needed to test it and see if it would turn into a big gummy mess or if it would actually be pretty feasible to do and in the in, when I tested it, I used, I had one bag of rye malt and I had par, a part bag of barley malt or something. So I ended up doing it as 66% rye malt and 34% barley malt, which would, would be enough rye malt for me to test what would actually happen and taste it and know that the rye malt would be good. I had to build an agitator for, because I was gonna do it grain in, I wanted to test the grain in fermentation and distillation as well. So I built an agitator for my wash still so really after that, and, said, and, it, and it worked great and it tasted awesome, um, and I called that a double malt. And I was like, well, why don't we just do that in the facility when we get it open as well? And Jim immediately, so this was five years ago at this point, uh, he immediately said, oh, we'll call it Duality. So he came up with the name. It was, I guess, the second product that we had a concept for. Um, and we hadn't necessarily planned to do it right away, but at the same time, um, I wanted to do it right away. <laughs> So we did, and the, the, using the cherry smoke in it was an idea that came later just as an interesting, just I like smoky stuff and you know I think a lot of people like smoky stuff and it, it's interesting. It's not the cheapest thing to do. It's very, it's actually, that is actually the most expensive grain we use. It's about $1. ten a pound um, versus rye is about 50 cents a pound. So it's more than twice as expensive as, as rye. If we if we wanted to make stuff cheap we'd make everything out of corn
6: and then you know whatever it, that's not what we do
1: that's so <laughs>
6: so the the method Justin has devised is basically combining the centuries old method of copper pots that single malt distillers have been using with traditional 100% malted barley single malts so he combines that but he wanted to put the grains in there like bourbon distillers have been doing for you know however long now, um, where they leave the grain solids in there from mashing through fermentation into the distillation. So it's kind of combining both of those centuries old methods to, to get the most, most flavor we can out of our system. And, and what that requires is, is he mentioned an agitator earlier. Um, I don't know if you touched on this yeah. or you did, okay. Yeah, yeah. Cool.
5: but you can, you can go on, you're doing a good job.
6: If you've already discussed what an agitator is, I'm, I'm, I'm so, yeah. I have a Scottish ancestry, so I'm kind of parsimonious at words.
5: So, so, <laughs> so, so if I'd gotten a Scottish, what what Chad's getting at is if, if I'd gotten a Scottish still, they, they build them with steam coils inside generally or cylinders and that you can't put a mash in that because it'll scorch on that. They also usually use a rummager instead of an agitator. So I, although I love the Forsyth stills, the Scottish stills they are beautiful I needed kind of to combine on equipment level, I needed to kind of combine the Scottish and the American pot still. So the Scottish, so if you look at our stills, the top of them are, they look just like a Scottish. The wash still looks like a Glenn head and the spirit still looks like a Glenn Merengue head. At the bottom of them are Vindome over the years, has developed stills that have a, pan, a steam pan, like I was showing y'all, with an agitator rather than a full steam jacket. And as far as I know, they're the only people that built them like that for many, many years, pot stills. And so they, uh, they kind of combine those things based on my, on my needs.
0: Cool. Yeah. Um, what's your barrel process for the tire fire, and does it differ from what the traditional... Uh, I was reading that a lot of scotch barreling is done in old, like, uh, uh, wine barrels, Madeira barrels, stuff right, like that.
5: Right, absolutely, yeah. So our barreling process is very different, partly based on laws. Uh, in America, when they made the laws, the regulations uh, for what, what you could do with whiskey, the Coopers industry was very powerful, and they wanted to make sure nobody was reusing barrels. So in, generally, in the U.S., we're required to Age things in new white oak barrels, not in used barrels. Or if we want to use used barrels, we can't call it bourbon whiskey. We have to call it whiskey distilled from bourbon mash, all in the same size lettering. And it's not super feasible. Sometimes there's some exceptions to that. Duality, for example, they approved that to use both new and used barrels. A used barrel takes much longer to mature because it's already been heavily extracted. So we we don't have 10 to 12 years anyway because we would not be here in 10 to 12 years. We need to sell whiskey. Um, so we're, we're happy using new, new barrels. So the tire fire mostly, almost completely goes into new barrels. There's a few used that I've employed, but for the most part it goes into, so that's very different than, than Scott's made uh, peated whiskeys, which are universally for the most part going into either ex bourbon barrels or ex sherry, sometimes port barrels. So what that allows me to do, so Chad touched on the flavor draw that I'm that I'm getting by having the solids in through the whole process. The, the historical reason to not do that was that people thought that it would pull tannins into the spirit from the grain. Uh, so that was part of what my experiment was, was to prove that that does not happen, that tannins do not distill over. I think I've adequately proved that now. Uh, I don't, sometimes people just say things and it gets repeated and becomes, you know, the rule, and it's just not necessarily... You don't figure that out unless you do it and try it. So by having the grains through the through the entire process, I'm able to pull more malt flavor through the entire spirit run, whereas generally your flavor concentrates more heavily at the beginning and the end, and and part of the art of distilling is in selecting how much of the heads, the beginning, and the tails, the end of the second distillation to keep to put into a barrel and to put in a barrel and have it be good in two years, you have to take a fairly narrow cut, which is leaving out a lot of flavor. So what my process does is have more flavor through the whole thing. So I can take, I don't take super narrow cuts, conservative cuts, especially with tire fire, because a lot of the smoke still comes out, especially in the tails. Um, So, but I can take slightly more discriminant portions of the whiskey to put into a barrel so that it doesn't really need five six years to just be pretty good it can be excellent in 18 months or two years in a new barrel at least now in a used barrel that would still be pushed out you know at least a couple more years just because there's not the extractive capability in the barrel anymore that was a long Uh, explanation to say that the tire fire aging process maturing maturation process is different both in the barrels that we're using and also in the amount of time that it takes because of the my specific process and the way that i make the whiskey
1: cool so we have some more of this interview but first we have a quick break forward from our sponsor
2: What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.
4: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love.
3: Perfect home, sweet home.
1: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Now let's get back into the interview. Annie, uh, do, you, do you have anything over there? How did you get into this?
5: Um, well, I got interested in it um, as so my pa- I'm from Harrelson County, which is about an hour uh, northwest of Atlanta. And my pawpaw had been a whiskey maker to some degree and and more, and also mainly, I think, more a driver. Uh, when he was a young man, that was my pawpaw buck. And my granny re really made him quit. Um, she was Baptist. And that, you know, I, I didn't learn anything from him. I just heard stories, mainly like from uncles talking while he was standing there not talking because he didn't want to get beat with something later <laughs> a rolling pin. Um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I mean, so I was just, in, I mean, Granny Reed always kept a jar of, of liquor in the cupboard for coughs. So, like, me and my cousin Josh would come in from hunting, like, oh, Granny, help us out. Need some, Get the jar out. Uh, so, I mean, I was interested in whiskey from a young age. How, how <laughs> did she have a cough? She never, she never fell for that. I never saw her drink it. She wouldn't uh, even drink Coca-Cola because it burned her throat. She's going to haunt me (laughs) for saying that. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so I kind of got interested in it just based on family history. And then right out of high school, just decided to do it. And a friend's dad let me use his barn to um, just experiment, not extra legally. That doesn't mean very, very legal. (laughs) It turns out I thought it was I thought it was very, very legal to make whiskey at home. Turns out extra legally means not legal <laughs> so uh, that was not good. I wouldn't call it whiskey. whatever I was making was not very good, but it was okay enough to keep trying and Experimenting, and I started, so this is about 2000, I started, my dad started making wine with his Italian neighbor. It was really bad wine, so I was kind of started helping them, and we started getting grapes shipped in from California, and I learned a lot about it. And then I started making beer, uh, and then I opened a homebrew shop. The old homebrew shop that I worked at in Athens went out of business my last semester at college. So then I opened my own homebrew shop, which more or less was just a way to be able to make as much alcohol as I wanted because it didn't, you know, it didn't make a lot of money, <laughs> uh, and I was part of the DIY punk scene in Athens, so that kind of went hand in hand. And then at some point, early maybe two thousand and four, two thousand three, when I started making all grain beer, not from extract, I realized that I was making the basis of the whiskeys that I like to drink, and at, at that point, I had come to like scottish single malts around then I started trying to make trying to up my distilling game and figure out how to do it better there's not distilling's not like brewing where there's a codified and well-known methodology I kind of learned through trial and error poured out a lot of stuff and just just figured it out as I went which is how you know a lot of distillers figure it out because like I said, there's just there's not one way to do it. Brewing has been the same for a hundred years since the Industrial Revolution, with very, very few changes, and distilling is still basically an individual pursuit. Bourbon may be all made the same way for the most part in Kentucky, but it's, it's very different. like if you learn how to make bourbon in Kentucky, you cannot go make whiskey in Scotland or Taiwan or Japan. Or at ASW Distillery because that's not how we make. We don't. It's very. It's just a very different process. Um, very different equipment. So I basically taught myself how to how to do it, how to make good stuff, and started buying five gallon barrels and aging it. I never sold anything or it wasn't. I wasn't that extra legal. I just was basically making it to to learn how to do it and um, to drink it and share it.
6: Um, and the batches that you poured out, is that a euphemism for saying you gave them to punks? Punks.
5: Yes. <laughs> poured it out into punks' mouth. Uh, and yeah, and then I sold the brew shop. And a couple of years later, started working with Jim and Charlie to... Actually, I went to high school with Jim's sister, Joy. She's been a pretty good friend of mine since middle school, I guess, when my family moved to, to Athens. And Jim went to school with my, high school with my sister who's five years older than me, his age. And so Joy said, oh, you've got to, when they started American Spirit Whiskey and we're talking about opening a distillery, she said, oh, you've got to try my friend Justin's whiskey. It's really good. And they're like, yeah, sure, Joy. Your friend Justin makes really good whiskey, I bet. <laughs> um, so we, uh, I, they asked me to, you know, we talked on the phone once and then I drove to Atlanta, my first time in Atlanta. <laughs> i'm uh, not a big city person. I get confused by roads and i don 't like phones, so i don't have the maps and stuff on my phone i just I know how to get here that 's it um, and I can get through Atlanta to go to harrelson County. I do like Atlanta though I just can't navigate it because there 's no creeks like how do you know where you're at when you don't when you can't see a, a creek or a river the anywhere sun and the stars dude well, the sun's always <laughs> occluded by smog it's very it 's a very difficult place to navigate anyway. Yeah, so I brought them a bottle, and they tasted it. It was actually the Americonic, basically exactly what's in the Americonic bottle. Uh, same mash bill. They tasted it, and we went from there. And it took a long time, but we finally got this place running. And, and then they let me just kind of do what I want so far. Yep, and that's, that's
6: it.
0: Uh, how about you? How did you get into all this?
6: Uh, I was working at a software company in Midtown and loved to drink. So um, I was trying to build sales software for craft breweries and all the ones that I talked to, not naming any names, uh, said they really liked the concept. They just didn't have any money to pay for it, which in hindsight, I think means they didn't like the concept that much. They were just a little too nice to say it. And so in trying to find my first paying customer, I kept asking all sorts of different folks, you know, cheese makers and winemakers, and uh, ended up emailing Jim how different
5: your life would be if the cheesemakers had taken you up <laughs> <laughs> <I> know,
6: <right? laughs> and uh, Jim was f- intrigued enough by the concept to say why don't you come uh, sit down sit down with me and we'll talk and so this building that we're sitting in at the time was it's the old Mason Muir Art Gallery but at the time Mason Muir all of their art installations had been cleared out and this was just a concrete shell. It was more or less like a bunker, right? And so the one piece of furniture in the whole building was there's a supply closet on the total opposite end of the building. And so he and I sat in there and had a good conversation for about an hour, and they were about to raise money to afford this whole thing. And when he told me about, I assumed that meant in the next six weeks, not six months later, Um, but so I, I wouldn't say I was hoodwinked into joining for basically peanuts for the first six months, but it borders on that, I would say. And um, so uh, Justin had, had joined, and so he and I met for the first time at an event here. Uh. The first
5: time I came in this building, it was still the art gallery, and there was still pictures on the wall, and the Mason mirror was here, and he was like, who the f- are y'all? <laughs> and we were like, oh, we're stealing your facility. <laughs> and he was like, it was a very big
6: deal. We did. We didn't. We did not acquire this by theft. We. Oh yeah, no. By
5: th- yeah. <laughs>
6: I'm sorry. Was sorry that was.
5: You can just. Yeah.
6: <laughs> <laughs>
5: <laughs>
3: it was so
0: it legal, was y'all. Extra <laughs> legal. <laughs> very, very legal.
6: <laughs> so that's uh, and then and then I joined the team, and uh, off to the races ever since. Mhm. It's been a race, that's for sure. Sure has. I'm winded.
0: Do you all do any collaboration with uh, with other makers of cool stuff around town?
5: Yeah, I mean, we have the Monday night whiskey. That was a mash that, that Peter and Adam made over, or washed. They made over there and fermented over there then brought to me, and I distilled it. So we're on our second, I think I made nine or ten barrels of that the first year, and now we're on our second making of that, um, which I think we have maybe 18 or 20 barrels more. So that's been a pretty big collaboration. And then we one thing that, we, that helps us stay alive is that because of the boom in barrel use by breweries, we're able to actually sell our barrels for not too much less than we pay for them. We're actually adding value to them. Whereas 10 years ago, you just kind of like, you got 50 bucks for them. You were lucky if you could, um, you can shake them down and send them to Scotland and get about that much. So now we're able to recoup a lot of that, which is a huge expense for us, that just the barrels are about 200 bucks a piece. So we do a lot of collaborations on that front. Uh, we ha- All the breweries are so pushed for volume right now, they don't have the fermenter space or the person power to really devote to more elaborate collaborations like we did with Monday night. Although we, we have tried to, we want to, and, lots of them want to it's just figuring it out is. it's yeah it's hard but the barrel programs have been good and we we do kind of um what do y'all call it the dram the draft and dram, dram, and dram combo, combo. where yeah. we kind of pair a whiskey with a beer that mainly chad or and josh think would go well together um orpheus has done one i think we're doing another somewhere
6: yeah we've got one down in south Georgia with- Pretoria Fields, Mm -hmm. which is uh, an old brewer from Russian River out in California. There's a pretty, what would you call it, uh, beer of lore called Pliny the Elder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's Russian River. One of their brewers has started a brewery in Albany, Georgia, of all places. Um, And so we've got a little draft and dram combo with them. Their brewery is called Pretoria Fields. We pair it with our Fiddler Bourbon. We call it Fiddlin' in the Fields is the, the combo.
5: Yeah, and, and we have some other small projects and work, but uh, for the most part, we're kind of hunkered down just trying to keep up with demand. So just we're kind of in the same boat as the as the breweries. We've tried to work with a winery to try to do some wine-finished whiskeys, but haven't quite made that happen yet. But yeah, we're looking looking to do some more collaborations. And, Jen, and Chad, like I said, his job is not making labels. It was not part of his actual uh, purview, so we're all pretty
6: pushed for what we can get done, but we've got to do some more collaborations, and we know that. Word to the wise for any listeners, if you don't know how to make labels, don't try to teach yourself. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's really, really miserable. <laughs> the payoff's been pretty huge, though. It takes hundreds of hours. Don't do it.
0: There is even more interview for you, but first, there's one more quick break for a word from our sponsor.
2: Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. Roller coasters! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.
4: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out
3: perfect home sweet home.
0: And we're back. Thank you sponsor and back to the interview. How much are you guys producing? How much did you start producing versus uh... So
5: we started production here. I was making two mashes a week in one day and then distilling that in two days uh, over the course of two days. So we were making uh, four barrels a week for the first year. And then we doubled that, we added some fermenters and then and Drake, my friend who who started brewing at my brew shop that I had, and then went on to work at Stone out West and all some other breweries uh he came on board in January so that we could he can he makes four mashes a week and I distill four mashes a week, so now we're up to eight barrels, which is about four hundred barrels a year,
6: and that is close to full production. That might not sound like a lot, but there are about three hundred or so bottles per barrel, so that's so yeah. It's a boatload yeah. of bottles. And
5: we're the largest distillery in Georgia, but, you know, a big, a big factory in Kentucky is making 300 barrels in a week. So we're still, it's, we're very small comparatively.
0: Why did the, the distillery set up in, in Georgia and Atlanta specifically?
5: Um, well, Jim and Charlie both live in Atlanta and love Atlanta. Atlanta's awesome, has a great spirits culture cocktail culture uh and and other parts of georgia do as well uh it had it has not been served by a local whiskey distillery yet until us so i I mean I, i think it was more because they are atlantans as is chad than anything else i mean it's just their it's their town yeah and they love it and i mean we all love it but it doesn't hurt that there was not someone else doing it already. Uh, yeah yeah. <laughs> Like in Nashville's got three, two or three, and it's smaller than Atlanta, and there was no whiskey distillery here, so if someone was going to do it. Uh, we just did it and did it really well.
0: One more process question. How do you pick out your, your grains and your yeasts for the different things that you do? Do you use the same yeast for everything or?
5: Uh, I, we use a couple different yeasts. We use a I, I use a distiller's active dry yeast, which is a very basic yeast for some things, um, and then I use a whiskey yeast, which is basically bourbon yeast, for some things. And some things have both duality and Resurgence Both actually use both yeasts. Um, just I found that, that it to be more complex. Um, we use a sauvignon blanc yeast for the apple brandy, but that's basically it. we don't do a lot of yeast ferment for, uh, yeast experimentation. Because it the way that yeast works is that the constituent flavors that are produced in the distillate from the yeast break down over time, and so I don't really know what that the difference the yeast is going to do. I might not know that for three years, or minimum two years, or you know three or four more likely. So if I if I change to a different yeast and I end up not liking it, I, I have just used it for three years. So with grain. I can do a lot of grain experimentation um, and it's much more immediately evident what has happened uh, and, and how it's gonna age. And I, I can tell and you know, I, this, this first batch of tire fire was basically a test batch and I knew after three months I could taste, this is awesome, we're gonna do this, put it into our regular product lineup. If I had done it with a completely different yeast, then I, there, I may still not know. Um, so we don't use a lot of different yeast. A lot of breweries don't now either. When I when I was learning in the brewing uh, world, a lot of breweries did have a lot of different strains they used. And now it, it's gone to more house strains just for ease. And they ha- may have a few separate, a few different things they use and maybe a sour program. But for the most part, that's kind of simplified throughout, throughout the industry. And then with grains, as far as choosing, I just... I just kind of make, just kind of think about it and make it up, <laughs> like, you know, I, I just, I, because I owned a homebrew shop, I know all the grains that are out there, uh, I certainly don't know all the hops that are out there now, because they keep inventing new hops, keep breeding new hops every two months, but uh, for, for grains, it, I've, I've spent 15 years with them, and I know what they all do in beer and whiskey both, so, you know, I basically just figure out what I want to do in my mind and then do it. <laughs> Yeah, You know, you still have to test it. And we do all, all our testing is in full. The, mo, the least I can make is three barrels. So I, I just, I have to kind of be pretty sure it's going to be good before I do something. <laughs> so far, I haven't messed up, except we did put a barrel of resurgence. We moved into a sherry barrel. And that is not good.
6: It's gross. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah.
5: So that will probably never be released. I keep putting it on our projection, projected bottlings. Like, oh yeah, we'll release that next year. And People, then we taste it, and we're like, no.
6: Still not. No, People never us, you know, are you going to have something aged 25 years? I'm like, see that barrel right there? that Sherry a, finish. A hundred years.
5: There's going to be three bottles. <laughs>
6: <laughs> yeah.
5: <laughs> but the, port, the Resurgence port finish came out great. So, yeah, we'll probably do that again.
1: Anything you have on the horizon that you're excited about? Any new things, projects? Uh, so we
5: have the Druid Hill, which is, after many, many attempts at naming our Irish style, our pure pot still style whiskey, uh, that is what was not taken, that we were not going to get sued for using. Uh, and I, I, love, I love the name anyway. But um, So we got that coming out in a couple weeks, and that will also be a permanent addition to the product line although not for about 10 months because that that was also a test batch. And that's made from 30% unmalted barley in the pure pot still style. So in Ireland, the English made a tax 200 years ago or so on malt. So the Irish were like, well, let's see how much unmalted barley we can use and still make good whiskey. And it turns out it's about 30%. (laughs) Um, So I used, so they started doing that and I started, and so I used 30% unmalted barley and then 70% from the Loughran's um, small family farm and maltster i was telling you about and james will actually be here at the release of that here in a couple weeks uh and that's also triple distilled which is very cool and a lot of extra work (laughs) but it says triple (laughs) distilled on it yep and let's see what else we have another so americonic is a series of single malts and we have another of those coming out sometime probably november and then that's I think that's about it for this year. And then next year we have our our pure pot still bourbon coming out in April or so. And probably some other and some other single malts as well.
0: When you're calling these places that do these uh specialty malts and grains and stuff, have have you ever had anyone go like, "Yeah, sure, I'll ship that to you. Wait, you're in you're in where?"
5: <laughs> yeah, I think so. I'm the probably not explicitly, but imply, yeah, we're, I'm actually the largest distillery customer for Country Malt, which is the main malt supplier east of the Mississippi, because not very many places are making malt whiskeys. They're made mostly east of the Mississippi making bourbons for the most part. Out on the West Coast, that's not the case. California, Oregon, Washington have a lot of, and Texas as well has a, a couple of big malt whiskey makers and uh, Colorado as well. So, yeah i I think some people are surprised we're doing this in Georgia. It's kind of a big extreme step as far as going from no distilleries in Georgia, no whiskey distilleries in Georgia essentially to a pretty extreme experiment you know usually you'd have some kind of intermediary where you'd have just a basic bourbon distillery or something, and we of course we'd make bourbon, but we kinda and i think i I kind of pushed that pushed us that way as did Chad just to be more craft just everybody's so jaded kind of by distilleries kind of doing the same thing over and over um that we wanted to really kind of flex our craft so that we could you know just show that we're real and doing real cool things get people interested um, and just interested in spirits because if you just make the same thing all the time then people are not. It's only so excited you can get about a company that a, a, a craft distillery that crafts maybe crafts one thing, non. And you know it's it's just or maybe they put it in a different barrel sometimes or something. But the reason that craft beer exploded in America is not because they were making the same thing all the time that that sold well. That was just the regular run of the mill product. They did cool, interesting things or tapped into history to do historical things. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, I think we do get a little surprised sometimes that we're in Georgia. Certainly when we, the only other distillery that did, that was kind of on par with us in the San Francisco World Spirits competition was Balcones in Texas. Chattanooga did pretty well as well, but for the most part, we were in the top at the very top. So I think probably people look at that and say, What? Where? You know, it's people are used to that happening in San Francisco and Portland and Seattle, New York, and now in Atlanta.
1: This brings us to the end of this our interview. Um, it was, I've since we started doing this show, I've just been so happily surprised and astounded by how giving. Everyone is.
0: Oh yeah, just amazing generosity from from folks. And I mean, you know, like like they're they're trying to sell some whiskey, probably. But also, oh man, just the fact that people who make cool stuff are willing to sit down and
1: talk to us about it. I'm always just like, what me? Yeah, and they're so passionate about it. It's yeah. just I, I love it because we're. I mean, if you didn't know, if you couldn't tell, <laughs> we're a bit. Uh, we're a little nerdy. We, we like uh, some science and some history. And I love that people we talk to just sprout out with them. They're like, we don't want to bore you. I'm like, no. Please bore us. <laughs> we won't be bored at all. Oh, that's the better response, yeah. Go into every detail ever. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was a such a fun time. Um, and I'm really glad that we got to do it and we got to share it with you.
0: Yes, absolutely. We hope that you enjoyed it as well. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do that thing.
1: There are a number of ways. One is email. You can email us at hello at saverpod.com. You can also reach out on social media.
0: We are at SaverPod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We do hope to hear from you. Thank you, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thank you, to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way.
2: Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Boarding. Can I get excursions? We're watching! Time for chill vibes. Beach, yoga! And how about a garden tour? Park. Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.